it's almost comes to a time of redefining ourselves beyond the stuff of ourselves. And, you know, I don't want to go back, my family or friends, to a shotgun house, but I remember the love that was in that house. I want that love to be packaged. There was one thing that the most of the women of the South would do when a relative would move north or go out west or whatever, or to the East Coast, they would always quilt them a quilt. I mean, it was just like a prized possession. It was like a, it was just like part of an estate. We're sending you your quilt. And, and they all people would go to Detroit, live in Chicago, but their pride possession was the, the quilt that they got from back home because that quilt in its own fragile way represent connectivity. It represented family. It represented life. It represented death. It kept you warm when it was cold. It looked pretty on the bed. And it was done by the hands of people you cared about and who cared about you. And I think if we needed to do anything in the 21st century is to re-examine how deeply we care or how deeply we should care and let care become a driving force in our lives once again. This is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast. I'm Jason Blair. That's Clifton Talbert, an author, business consultant, and speaker, who's best known for his books, Once Upon a Time When We Were Colored, and Eight Habits of the Heart. Clifton was born in 1945 in Glen Allen, a small town in the Mississippi Delta. The Delta includes a distinctive northwest section of Mississippi and portions of Arkansas and Louisiana that lie between the Mississippi and the Yazoo Rivers. The land in the Delta is flat and contains some of the most fertile soil in the world. The climate is humid and subtropical, with short, mild winters and long, hot, wet summers. It's no surprise that across American history, the region has attracted many speculators, not unlike those going to California during the gold rush or flocking to venture capital in Silicon Valley now. Those speculators developed land across the riverfronts for cotton plantations and became wealthy white planters who were dependent on the labor of the people they had enslaved. They used the rivers to transport their spoils. By the time in American history before the Civil War, the slaves made up the vast majority of the people living in these counties, with blacks outnumbering whites by two to one in population and zero to a hundred in terms of political power. The Delta is called the most southern place on earth because of its unique racial, cultural, and economic history. The Delta is where thousands upon thousands of Choctaw and Chickasaw indigenous people were forcibly removed from their traditional land so whites could till the soil. It's where African Americans were brought in to cultivate the land that was stolen from the Native Americans. The Delta was where, in 1860, the farms and plantations yielded 1.2 million bales of cotton, making it the nation's leading cotton producer, but on the backs of some 430 thousand slaves. 
The Delta is also where Emmett Lewis Till, a young black man from Chicago, was abducted, tortured, and lynched in 1955 after being accused of flirting with a white woman. Even after the Civil War and emancipation of black Americans, in 1890, the white-dominated state legislature passed a new constitution doubling down on disenfranchising blacks in the state and ensuring they could not own land, obtain credit, or vote through strong political oppression. This exclusion of most of the population held until the civil rights movement in the 1960s. Clifton grew up in Glen Allen two decades before any of that reform touched the Delta. Eventually, Clifton made his way out of the Delta. In 1963, after graduating high school, he went to Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where he earned his bachelor's degree. Later, he went to earn a graduate degree from Southwest Graduate School of Banking at Southern Methodist University in Texas. Clifton served in the 89th Presidential Wing of the U.S. Air Force, an elite unit that supports the president. And he was eventually inducted into the Enlisted Airmen Hall of Fame. Clifton also worked as a banker and eventually founded his own company, the Fremont Corporation, which focused on employee development and the effectiveness of organizations. He and his company have been involved in everything from his speaking and book writing to founding a coffee company, Roots Java, that empowers workers and business owners in Africa and the United States. He's authored 13 books, including The Eight Habits of the Heart, Embracing the Values that Build Communities, Clifton has spoken to a wide variety of groups from the Department of Defense and the FBI to Bank of America and university classrooms. The late Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor invited him to address the members of the court on his views about community. CNN chose Clifton at the turn of the millennium to represent one of the many voices of the U.S. community. He's been recognized by, among others, the University of Tulsa, the Library of Congress, Rotary International, and the NAACP. Today, we're going to discuss hope and belonging, growing out of poverty, the impact of racism of the past, and what persists in the present, and how we can grow and build a better world through understanding history and building community. Clifton, I just wanted to thank you, despite uh, my only hiring you to work for us uh, once, that you still talk to me, first of all. But <laughs> I wanted to thank you for joining. And I just wanted to, like, you know, it, it, just talk a little bit about, like, how we met, like, what a blessing it was for me, and and how we initially co- connected. We connected through a mutual friend who... Uh, you know, works in the space of leadership development. And our very young company had gotten probably its biggest uh, contract working with executives. And we were we were thinking that these folks who were in the, the military, they were trying to build a new organization out of like five, six, seven organizations. And our mutual friend said, this is the man that you want to have talk if you want to talk about building 
um, a community. And I was just so impressed by your story, so impressed by your background, so impressed by what you came from. And certainly, you know, with my own family history, my father growing up in the low country of South Carolina and my mom's family growing up in poverty on the Northern Neck, I related you know, both my parents are the only ones in their family who made it to college. And they spent much of their life lifting up and carrying the cousins, the nieces, the nephews, the relatives behind them. So it, it resonated with me. You resonated with me. And I thought you just brought a powerful message. Thank you. It's not that difficult to look back and remember the bridge that carried you across. Uh, if that bridge had not been there, the chasm would have been too big for me to afford it by myself. Hmm. The, I, I guess I, I get that. Like when I think of my parents or I think of, you know, a couple of teachers along the way who lifted me up or, you know, I think almost everything in life, you know, we're social animals and we're social beings so much of it is affected in either positive ways or negative ways by, by, by those who stand ar around us. Is that fair? I, I, I think so. Uh, you know, that's, that's the reality of, of life. We, we are surrounded by our past, surrounded by the present, surrounded by the future. And that is usually represented by the people with whom we associate with, we live with, we play with, we work with. It all comes together to create something. I remember when I spoke at the Library of Congress and Sandra Day O'Connor introduced me, she said, no one accomplishes anything alone. I mean, you don't even accomplish bad stuff alone. People gravitate yeah. toward people. And, uh, and hopefully that gravitating process is one where good comes out of it and, and, and precedes us and set a standard by which we can live and grow. Yeah. And one thing that stands out to me about you, Clifton, as a, as a human, despite the difficult things, the obstacles, you approach life with such compassion or, and empathy, and compassion and empathy for even people who may have wanted to do you harm or weren't supportive. Where, do, where does that come from? Where do... You know, that, that's an incredible question, uh, and, and I thank you for asking it, because in all honesty, I can't really answer it. I can give you sidebars. Uh, my great aunt who raised me, uh, she says she never had the time to deal with the troubles that pressed her way. She had to get her kids in college. So she didn't, racism was alive and well in my small town. You could either make room for it or totally ignore it. And uh, she was one that ignored it and, uh, and, and, and really possessed this quality of making the best out of what she had and, and, and passing it along, uh, giving you the idea that, yes, you can make it. No matter what the stumbling blocks are there, no matter what anyone else says, I know you can make it. And I think I lived in a positive house. That's the bottom line. Mm -hmm. And it's um, like I remember my um, on my dad's side of the family. They are the most loving people on the planet. 
they don't talk about their emotions much, but you never have any doubt. But the strength uh, in the face of adversity, their strength, their ability to smile, their ability to believe that this too shall pass is, you know, it, it's funny because I don't know whether they deliberately taught me that, but that's been a bridge that's carried me. I to know that danger. things will pass. I just wrote that note. Oh, really? <laughs> I said, I didn't do anything. They did everything. They did the heavy lifting. They, they just, they refused to be bowed down to the weight of racism that was so prevalent. Their, their humanity found a place in which to stand and, 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 and they became the standard bearers. Of, 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 of what I would call community where you really purposely, intentionally, every day of your life, think in terms of how do I make the world a better place for my child, for my nephew, for my cousin, for my friend down the street? What about the person we don't even know their name? We simply call them cuz. How do we do that? And I watched them do that all my life. That's amazing. Yeah. And it's amazing. I don't even think sometimes about how powerful those things have been in my life. I am um, one of the things that I was thinking about in, you know, just preparing to talk to you was, you know, I, I, I recently read Once Upon a Time We Were Colored, and it was very moving for me. It explained a lot, uh, I think, I think about the grace the empathy, the strength that that you show. Um, but there was, it, one of the things about that book was you really explored growing up in the Delta, growing up in Glen Allen, really, really sort of looking at those, the history, but also those last days where segregation was enforced legally, not that it ended there, but where it uh, was enforced legally. And I remember this one quote that you said where, you know, it's our desire as Black Americans to put segregation behind us. And this kind of ties into what we were saying about things passing. But you said that we put ourselves in danger of forgetting our past, the good and the bad, and that you believe that to forget our past, which is the colored past, um, is to forget ourselves, who we are, and where we've come from. And I'm I'm just curious from your perspective, like what is the cost of forgetting, right? Because I think about your aunt, right? She didn't forget. She chose to power through it and ignore it. But wh what do you think the price of forgetting is? You know, I, I think the price of forgetting is that it minimizes the blood that runs through your vein. Uh, it's not enough blood running through that gives you life. And, and I use blood as, as part of my metaphorical conversation right at the moment to be the stories, the, the, the stories of who we are. I mean, they, they did not call themselves storytellers, but they were. They passed the history on through the conversations they held. And it was those conversations that literally built you and, and connected you with the past, connected you with the present, and gave you reason to understand that at some point you will become a connector. 
you will become someone to add to, to build upon, to carry forth, to extend the road a step further. They always had you looking beyond the day and and, and an anticipating right. of, of something else. And they never gave up hope. It, it, it's like it's like they coined the phrase and made it real and, and, and served it up every day of their lives. Right, right, because it's easy to talk about that idea of hope. I love that concept, that idea of the stories that run through our veins, because it's not just our own life experiences growing up or other things like that. But I think about my father talking about, you know, his mother working as a sharecropper and him picking cotton during the day and on those bad days I'm having, you know, sometimes I say to myself, if he could make it through that, I can make it through this. Or my grandfather, whose brother was uh, lynched, which I only found out about a couple years ago, um, because they never talked about it. But our our aunts uh, and cousins told us about it, that if they can make it through that and build the beautiful life that they did, then I can make it through this. And I can help the other person who's suffering because not just through my own experience, but through those stories that run through my veins, I have a deeper understanding of suffering that lets me love people more deeply. Does that make sense? Yeah. We don't tell the stories anymore. You know, when my son comes home, he'll tell his friend, I'm telling you now that dad has a picture of everybody back as far as time memorial on the wall. And he's going to talk about them. So I'm telling you right now, he's going mm-hmm. to talk about them. Whether you're kin to them or not, you will know them by the time you leave his house. Uh, because that to me is what sustained me. That clear understanding that we were a real set of people with real goals and ambitions in spite of the challenges of legal segregation and, and, and the world when cotton was king. All of those things were real. But there was another real story as equally as real and even more powerful. It's the story that has given me this opportunity to talk to you. I'm 78 years old, Jason. I live today because of the stories that run through my vein that keep the blood pumping. Yeah. Who are those? Who are those people on the metaphorical wall for you? And who? What was it like growing up in the Delta? It, it was such a, a, a meshing of humanity, I like to say, is, is that you really didn't know, maybe until death or marriage, who really was kin to you and who really wasn't kin. Because the sense of kinship right. was so broadly you. I, I, I remember, you know, there were always those people that we didn't know their names, but they were called cuz. Now, if they come to every funeral, they at every baptism, every marriage, every high school graduation, they are there. They, you don't hardly ever see them anymore, but when those events happen, they show up. And the family with whom you live, they immediately tell you, now you see that's cuz over there, go over there and shake his hand because he's gonna know how you're doing in school. Cuz never tells us his real name, we don't know. 
But we know that these <laughs> are another set of people who look like us, but they have our best interests at heart. You know, you reminded me of something. I, w- I, I was talking to my cousin and somebody had introduced themselves to me as like, you know, my cousin. And I turned to my um, uh, cousin, my, uh, my, one of my aunt's daughters, and I said, who, which of these people are relatives? And she, she looked at me and shook her head and said, don't even try and figure it out. It doesn't matter. Yeah. And that's yeah, what you, you just go. said reminded me of that. That Yeah. No, that's yeah. And if we lose our past in order to run quickly to a future we have imagined, your cousin told you the right word. It doesn't matter. It's your cousin. Period. Now let's go get some food. Right. Yes. And that is exactly what happened after every one of those funerals. The, um, the you know, what's interesting about that, Clifton? So I, you know, it, my family was hit by tragedy. My mom died in October. Nine days later, her uh, sister died. And nine days later, the next sister died. So we were down there for three three funerals in a row. Wow. And someone had told me about a decade ago, they said, you know, the ministers still bring up who we call Daddy Robert, who is my grandfather on my mother's side. Still, the man died in like 1982, and they're still bringing him up. Guess who got brought up in all three of those funerals? (laughs) They are still talking about him and the joy that he brought, the humor, the laughter, the love that he could bring to any situation and also all the crazy things he did. I'll give you this one quote somebody said at the funeral and he was a loving man. He said, boy, you only tell the truth when a lie won't do. (laughs) (laughs) And the funny thing about him was despite his lines like that, he was one of the most honest, loving people. I think people knew down there and we all carry him on carry him on. There are hundreds of us who carry him on. You know, that's what happened in Once Upon a Time when we were colored. Jason, when I started writing that, I said, it's a book written by love and fear. I was a soldier uh, during the Vietnam War. I didn't go to Vietnam, but I had the AFSC that would have called me at any time. So I live with the fear of going there. As a result of that fear, only thing that could calm that fear was to sit in my barracks room with my back against the wall with my yellow notepad and began to write about these people that I loved and cared so much for and their stories. And, mm-hmm. and, and it's, and, and, and when people read Once Upon a Time When We Were Colored, it wasn't Clifton Talbot's life. It was a life they remembered with names so different than the ones in the book, but stories almost verbatim in stories. Mm. And that's, yeah, I felt that way when I we were connected people, and um, and 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 I I see today the one thing that I see that really hurts me a lot, and I may be guilty of it too, and I certainly hope not. But when I left home, I was seventeen. My great aunt took me to the train station with a nephew driving the car, and she hugged me, kissed me, and said, "Now, whatever you do, don't make a shame up there." I mean. We come from an incredible mm-hmm. group of people who understood community, who understood living 
well. I'm not talking about having stuff. I'm talking about living well, preparing for others, anticipating others. They didn't have a hospice system where I live, but hospice was an incredible system that they created because they cared about each other. Right. You were other, yeah. Are alone. I remember my mom when I um, was probably in college. It may have been as I was going to college. And to your point about community, it's so interesting how so many of the stories you're talking about, like I could pluck out of out of my family stories. And she had made a comment along those lines. I don't remember exact words about you know the not embarrassing us. And I said. Like, why would you say that? And she said, it's not because I think you're going to embarrass us, but just recognize that you live in a world that wants to see you on some levels as another, and that you may be the first Black person somebody has a deep relationship with. You may be, you know, one of few, and there, there is a risk and danger in that, and... uh you know, I think when I was younger, I felt like it was a heavy burden, right? A very heavy burden. But over time, I really viewed it as a gift in a way because it made me more conscious of my actions, my behaviors, my compassion. And I don't think just in dealing with people who are white, but just dealing with people in general, I think that conscientiousness was so helpful and I think that's something you see in a lot of Southern Black communities, if that makes sense. Yeah, you know, it's, um, it's, it's like the call to stand tall because you are tall. You have stooped because the world has demanded you to stoop. But we're saying stand tall because you are tall. And, and that's how I took it. Right. And, uh, and even today, at this point in my life, I, I'm still the little boy under the gray hair. I'm still the little boy. Mm. job to do is to make sure that the aunties and the uncles and the cousins and those we call cuz are proud of us. I mean, that's where it, you didn't, you didn't have to look outside of your community to find this incredible word called pride. I mean, it was like pride right. lived next door to you, walked across the street from you. And that's why community is so important to me. I don't know it's, it, it's, uh, it's transformative. It's a very powerful way to live. What did that 8-year-old, 10-year-old, 12-year-old Clifton Talbert imagine his life would be like? And did you, did you dream of the things that you ended up doing? Did you believe? What, what did you... What did you think your world would be like at that point in growing up in Glen Allen? I always dreamed. But every, there were so many little pieces that uh, left you with the idea that others were expecting great things from you. But we were all on Mr. Walter's field truck going to the field. We were domestic migrant field workers. We didn't even know where the truck would take us today to pick us up. It, but we would end up somebody's, someone's field, either picking cotton or either chopping the cotton, whatever the case may have been. But they always expected more. And, 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 and your schooling was, was not just a school, 
I mean, it was the place that you got your preparation to become the adult that they knew you could be. I mean, it was it, it was much more than geography and math and science. It it it, it was a life opportunity. Is it was just like it, it was like going to this incredible place that at, at the day you graduate, you graduate different than when you walked in. You are an entirely different person. You know, it it, uh, it it was an incredible. I remember one time you and I were talking. I had called you one day, and I forget why I called you, but it was something I had read about Tulsa, you know, where you had, where you had moved to. And I think it was maybe about, like, the the intermingling of, you know, during when Andrew Jackson and others were uh, repopulating or taking Native Americans off their land, you know, many black slaves went with the Native Americans. We were talking about the history of Tulsa. And we started talking about the Tulsa race massacre, which a lot of people had no idea about until the recent TV shows and movies on it, or at least in in modern times. And you said this line to me, and I'm not going to get it right, but you said something about like never forgetting, never wanting to forget picking cotton. And and it just stuck in my head uh, in just thinking about how easily we try to run away from things in our history and I mean that on an individual level, but also a collective level, like things like Tulsa. Why do you why do you think we try to do it when so much good can come from it? Well, I I think there is a memory bank that remembers being left out of so much, being sidetracked from so many things that you could have participated in, and all of those things seem to have been on the other side of the track. And of course, many of those things were. But there were some things on our side of the track that built people, built community, built relationships, and uh, allowed you to pick cotton part of the year and go to school part of the year and still graduate number one in your class and and, and find your way Mm. having to get to college to Alcorn or to Jackson State or to Tougaloo the black colleges that were in the Mississippi area to find yourself there and, and, uh, and to have your folks so proud of you, uh, of, of what you were accomplishing. But it was like, they knew it all along. They, they knew that there was something on the other side of that chasm, but someone had to build a bridge to get you there. And, and that's what they spent most of their lives doing, not for themselves, but building the bridge for my generation. My generation, they saw their future through my lengthening steps and the millions of others who grew up in the same time frame as I did. We were their proof support. Right. When we take one step forward in life, do you think, what do you think our responsibility is to the people who are still one step back or who took one step back when we took one forward? I think the responsibility is not just to a people, but to the, I I would say to life. If If we choose to forget, then we will not have the time to really 
take in consideration our brothers and sisters who might need our smile, might need our handshake, might need a sandwich or whatever the case may be. Uh, but if we are reminded of the world that created us, I, I just wrote a story called Down the Road because that's where Mr. Lewis and, and uh, Sarah Fields live and they didn't have any kids. But believe it or not, Jason, there was just the two of them, but they always fixed and had another place setting at their table just in case. Just in case someone showed up. Oh, wow. I mean, and, and, and people knew that. If they were hungry, they knew if we just go down the road to Brother, Brother Fields out, there'll be food on the table. There'll be a plate. All, they didn't have enough chairs. Mm. So the old Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola crates, one sat there. That's where you would sit on. But you had a good meal for someone who didn't have kids, but you knew that if you just got there, you'd have a meal. I mean, that's who we are. Mm. And, and to forget that, we become somebody else. I don't want to become somebody else. I remember reading this book by um, an author who's a New York Times reporter before my time, Fox Butterfield. And he had set out originally to write the story of this uh, young man who had sort of gotten caught in what I call the early three strikes, your outlaws, Willie Bosket. And he was very notorious in New York. And, you know, Fox had set out to write simply his story and doing the research and the history. One of the things that really stood out, stood out and this is Edgefield County, South Carolina, bloody Edgefield, as they, they called it. But as he went through the history, and Fox doesn't say this clearly, but you, you pick it up in reading the book, that Willie's father, Butch could have probably been a lawyer and his father probably could have been a great judge or a doctor, but they weren't afforded the opportunities. And I was just curious about what, what your parents were like and what their opportunities were like and whether the lack of opportunity or the opportunities you've been given that they weren't affected you. You know, I'm very fortunate. Because my life, you know, didn't start out on a crystal stairway, as it were. It was a, a very humble life in a very small place. And the future seemed rather permanent, already in place. You just had to walk into it. It was already there. You grow up picking cotton and you grow up into a man and you drive tractors until you couldn't drive anymore. Then you would grow old and you sit on your front porch and then you would die. That's the way the world was overshadowed in my day. But the reality of it is that in spite of that reality, there was another reality. There were those people who would not give you an excuse for missing school. If you were not in school at nine o'clock, you're not supposed to be at home. You're not supposed to be visiting. You're supposed to be in Miss Max's classroom. And, and they made sure that they became part of the assistant principals, I call them, throughout Glen Allen to make sure that you were doing your very best, even though the circumstances 
looked as if your life would go the way others had. You had asked me earlier, did you dream? I, I dreamed because I read. I, I, I read books. I read mm -hmm. magazines. I, 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 my, I couldn't go to the library. So my great aunt built a, a makeshift library in her house. She wrote uh, the Black College. To Why couldn't you go to the library? It was, it was segregated. Mm. So there was no Black library? No, there was no Black library. There was just one white library, painted white, on Lake Washington. And wow. Was, I wanted to go to the library. And I, I'm a kid, but my great aunt was right down from the post office. So, And she knew. She knew that it was segregated. But I didn't understand that. So she took me to the library, to mm -hmm. the front door. And we were told that we couldn't come in. And she never said, now you see. But she just said this. Just don't spin yourself getting mad. Get mad for 15 minutes and then think about how you're going to fix it. That same day, she mm -hmm. went to T.Y. Quone grocery store and got old orange crate and apple crate box and painted them a putrid brown and set them up in her front room. And got every book she could find in the college that she wrote to. I think it was Alcorn to send old books because that's where her son was going to school. And he brought boxes of books. And so I had to go into her library every Saturday at one o'clock. And I told her, I said, I said, Mama, these uh, college books, I can't read these books. She looked at me as if I had lost every brain I had. She shook her hand, hand finger in my face. <laughs> If they can write it, you can read it. And she walked out. <laughs> the um, one of the things like education is so so fundamental to growth, to development, to 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 finding things in the world. And I think about a place like Mississippi Delta. Did, was there an element among the? political power or the people who had power because i think of how far you 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 made it in life and i'm wondering whether did it was there an attempt to suppress people because i look almost like the library as an example of that and it makes me wonder whether anyone could have stayed in the delta during your time and prospered in the way that you did well i prospered Intellectually, I guess, but not materially. But there's the other side of the Delta uh, that many people have, I won't say have overlooked, but there were like two areas. Greenville, Mississippi was called the Queen City of the Delta. And in Greenville is where you had gathered many of the black professionals, the black lawyers, the black doctors. I mean, even in the worst of legal segregation, there were African-Americans who had made great achievements because there were two distinct societies. And, and, and the black professionals served the black community and the white professionals served the white community. I mean, these were black people in the worst of times who had large three-bedroom brick homes. And, 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 and these were, mm. and most people, forget that or uh, have 
never realized that legal segregation also created two worlds. And within the black world, everyone did not pick cotton, even though- So it actually, in a strange way, created opportunity. Yeah, I hate to use the word opportunity, but yeah, that's that's the only word I can think of right now to join with you, is that legal segregation was a pathway for black professionalism. Mm. I never thought of it that way. I never thought of like a gift coming out of it on some ways. And I mean, I guess bringing it back to Tulsa, that's kind of the gift from Black Wall Street that they were trying to stamp out. Yeah. There's a book in the uh, African-American Museum called Separate But Unequal. Uh, And it was published by a publisher out of New York. And it's an incredible picture book of the middle class in the Mississippi Delta. It's, uh, and I was asked to write the essay for that particular book. And I simply called looking out of my grandpa's window because I lived in the country and the country was more apt to be the, the group of people that would be impacted by legal segregation and racism. Whereas in the city, uh, black people were the professionals. They were the school teachers. They were the preachers. They were the lawyers. They were the doctors. They were the black dentists. I mean, and these were people who lived well within the context of a legally segregated world. But in this book that's at the um, African American Museum, Separate But Equal, it's, it's a great, incredible story. It's just, it's, it's amazing to look at the pictures and to see the debutantes. At one set of the group of people be the people I would know in Glen Allen that go to the fields during the harvesting season and things like that. But there were also another group of black people that was like 30 miles away in the city whose lives were entirely different than my life. I could barely even imagine their life. It would have been so different. Mm. And that gave you inspiration? I would say inspiration, yes, because you realize, you know, I would see 25 people on the field truck going to pick cotton and chop cotton. The same people I would see every day of my life, I would see them, you know, and and I would see their homes. Many of them had shotgun homes. The, the, those typical small homes that you can almost couldn't even park a Volkswagen in them. They were so small, but that's what they're, that, that's where they lived. But at the same time, you had to go to town sometime to get clothes and things like that. And my grandpa would take me with him. And, uh, and that's where I would see another world. But I'd always go back to the world that I grew up in. And that's the world I write about is the world that I grew up in. Because the world in Greenville was, even though it was like 30 miles away, it was so different than my world. But at the same time, many of those people had once lived in Glen Allen or had lived below Glen Allen, but had been fortunate enough through the military to go to college and some other things like that and become professionals. And uh, seeing their professional lives lived out in places like Greenville and Hollandale and Memphis, Tennessee, places like that, that there were incredible scores of black professionals. 
I think about, it reminds me of two things. I, you know, one of my friends, um, and I got to give him credit, Brett, he made a comment to me last year that was about the importance of community at a time when so many traditional communities are broken. And, and it also sort of intertwines with this other thought based on what you've said and what you wrote about as the last habit you mentioned in your book, The Eight Habits of the Heart, Hope, you know, that I think that it's so important to have community right now, but at the same time, to get there, you almost have to have hope in so many people today, when I talk to them, whether they're Black or Native American or LGBTQ or they're poor, they say they don't have hope. So how do you think, like for you and for those of us in life who are struggling to find hope, how did you find it and how do you think we find it and how, how do we use that as a building block for community? Well, first of all, hope is far beyond a concept. Hope will always have two feet, two eyes, a tongue to wish to speak, and hands to reach out. Hope is a person. Hope has always been a person. And the voice from that person becomes the movement that allows another person to see himself or herself differently, to see that they are not totally on the outside of life, but that they are a part of life, a real part of life. And, and, and so much happens when an individual person recognizes that his or her ability to reach beyond themselves, this is what hope does. Hope opens the door and takes you to the front porch and take you down the steps and walk you out of your yard and, and, and you kind of walk you into the neighborhood of others. This is what hope does. And, 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 and sometimes hope is a sandwich prepared, but hope can also be a glass of water. But, you know, today I went to the cleaners, mm. you know, to get my clothes out of the cleaners. And, and uh, the lady that was working there just happened to have been an African-American and uh, and by the time I left, she was just smiling and laughing. I, I, I said, I got to get coupons. I said, this bill, I said, I feel I'm working for the cleaners. But, but what did I do? I wanted her to know that her humanity was important to me. And I took a little bit more mm. time than just going in, getting my clothes, and running out. I stayed enough time to say, ma'am, have a great Christmas. Just take good care of yourself. I'll be back tomorrow. I dirty up clothes very fast. But to see her laugh. And your message, I, yeah. You know, hope is not a mystery. You said you matter to me. Yeah. Hope is not mysterious at all. Hope is very, very practical, very, very real. And everybody can become hope for another person. Yeah, it's not just Frederick Douglass or James Baldwin or Martin Luther King. It's you when you go to the cleaners. It's somebody when they're going to the restaurant or that they smile or at a colleague or give a 
hug to a friend or kind words, hope, you know, I really, all those things flashed through my head as you were talking about. Yeah, and, hope, and, but that's what it is. Hope is embodied. Yeah. It's, uh, it's all of us. Hope is that habit that, uh, makes tomorrow a reality for you because without hope it's very difficult to face the next day because you're so burdened down by the morass of what you are suffering and what the circumstances are. But when someone comes into your life and, and, and bring just a, 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 a lift of a smile, a handshake that is meant, a conversation that draws you out of yourself and places you elsewhere, even if it's only for a moment, you realize, I can breathe. I can breathe the air of welcome. I can breathe the air of importance. I can breathe the air of my own freedom to become. That I'm not held captive by the past, but I can become. And this is what hope does. Right. It's so interesting. So, you know, you made me think of something there. The at a time where you know there is so much division and so many people think this is the worst of times, right? You know, you have things like the war in Ukraine and Russia. You have things like the rise of fascist-like behaviors in the the United States. You have suffering in Africa and uh, financial crises in other places. And you have all these things, but you also have those people who are bringing medical aid to the needy and the wounded. You have all these people who are taking these negative things like some of the division in the United States to show love that it kind of goes back to what you were saying before about segregation, that adversity gives you a great opportunity to build hope and love and community. Yeah, it's uh, you know, yeah, it, it, it it's amazing. Kind of I, like there's no light without the darkness. Yeah, because without the darkness, you have difficulty appreciating the light. I received a letter from a lady I can't recall her name now when when Once Upon a Time first came out, but I remember she lived in San Francisco, and she said, "Dear Mister Talbot, thank you for validating my grandfather's stories." She said, I didn't believe a word he said, but he always talked about a place mm. down home that's where life was good. He said things were not good financially. He said they didn't have much of a home, but she said he always said, but life was good. He said, thank you for writing that story. It reminded me so much of my grandfather's conversations. Mm. And that's, that's not, you know. That's and that's that connection with people. Yeah, yeah. It, it's uh, you know, it, it's it's coming to the point of realization. What I call that tremendous sense of kinship, and and oftentimes we try and find ways that we are not kin, so that we don't have to speak or, or reach out. But me, I'm just the opposite of that. I, I think kinship is the greatest gift humanity has. And one of the greatest gifts, I should say. Do you think your books have done that? Yeah, one of the greatest gifts. But do you think your books have sort of done that, create? Like you gave that example of the woman who read your book and it validated something in her past and she felt connected to her past and connected to you and what you wrote. And that's kind of like that idea of kinship 
or community. And it reminds me that it doesn't just come at church or at the community group or at work. It can come in all sorts of forms, the building that sense of community. And I think in a time where, you know, we have a tendency as human beings to be very myopic, right? Like my time is so bad or my time is so good, but that people have gone through this and found so many ways to build that sense of connection. I guess that idea that this is not new, that the turmoil we don't face today or that we do face today and that there is a path in our past and our history and our connections, I guess. No, it's, um, I, I, I don't know quite how to phrase it, but if you ask me, what, do I want to go back to yesterday? No, I don't. Because what I have learned to do, those things that were transformative in my life, that sense of kinship, that sense of caring for people other than yourself, I packed that in my suitcase with me when I left. Um, I, 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 the ground is still there and Lake Washington is still there. But, uh, those things that propel my life beyond the cotton fields of the Delta, I took them with me. And, uh, one of my friends said, Clifton, you are so good at keeping in touch. But I grew up at a house where my great aunt wrote every Saturday morning. I mean, it was a ritual. Uh, she wrote letters to the families, all our family, all across the United States. And my job was to stand there and listen to every letter being read. I mean, she wrote and read simultaneously. And then she would send me up to Ms. Johnson's post office. It was the United States post office, but uh, she called it Ms. Johnson's post office. And, uh, and <laughs> by that three cent stamp, stamps as it were, and away they would go. Uh, I mean, she was a connection between the South we knew and the North and West our other relatives would learn about. But she made sure that they were connected to home through the letters she wrote. And I think that's what I wanted to do with Once Upon a Time. And you learned with each letter. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you gave that back, right? You learned with each letter and you you gave that that gift of it. So what if if you had a message for people today about hope and community and history and and how these things are connected and how we can tap into them to not only make our own lives better, but make a better world for other people. What would it be? It almost comes to a time of redefining ourselves beyond the stuff of ourselves. And, you know, I don't want to go back, my family or friends, to a shotgun house. But I remember the love that was in that house. I want that love to be packaged. There was one thing that the most of the women of the South would do when a relative would move north or go out west or whatever, or to the East Coast, they would always quilt them a quilt. I mean, it was just like a prized possession. It was like a, it was just like part of an estate. We're sending you your quilt. And, and they all, people would go to Detroit, live in Chicago, 
but their pride possession was the, the quilt that they got from back home. Because that quilt, in its own fragile way, represent connectivity. It represented family. It represented life. It represented death. It kept you warm when it was cold. It looked pretty on the bed. And it was done by the hands of people you cared about and who cared about you. And I think if we needed to do anything in the 21st century is to re-examine how deeply we care or how deeply we should care and let care become a driving force in our lives once again. <laughs> That's powerful. I never knew that about the quilts, but sitting behind my couch in the other room is a blanket. It's a very comfortable blanket. And it says Northumberland County on it. And it's made by my family members. And it's got pictures of fishing on the water, which they did, and the different towns and stores. And, you know, it's interesting, Clifton. I never thought about why that was passed on to me. Yeah, that's... Uh, I never me, thought about it. My wife's family came from a family of quilters, especially her great-grandmother was a noted quilter. And uh, my son started his design company in L.A. He named it after his great-great-grandmother, Danzy Design Studio. And surprisingly, uh, this year at New York Fashion Week, his company was one of the companies they highlighted. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. And he honors her. Filled with quilts. Quilts all over the place. What a powerful example of how, you know, there's that saying that um, our first death comes when um, we die and the second one comes when we're forgotten. What a powerful way for her to live on. Yeah. What a powerful way. It's, uh, you know, you know, it's, I don't know. I, I just wish I could verbalize it the way I'd like to, to help people understand that the 24 hours we have, you know, we're never going to have 2810. Everything's going to have to be dumped in the 24-7 category. And worlds have been built within that time frame. And within that same time frame, we have built great communities. And people have had great love and great care. And as we said, when we started out, when I spoke at the Library of Congress about community, when Justice O'Connor introduced me, she said, no one accomplishes anything alone. It is by the weaving of one thread to another that something is accomplished. And I think mm, we are loners. That's powerful. And we should not be loners in thought. And we should not be loners in action. We should be a community, well connected. When one leans, the other leans with him. When one stands tall, the other stands tall as well. I mean, just embracing our shared humanity. That all tides. Could... Yeah, that those tides can raise, raise a multitude of boats. Because I think that thing that you were talking about before, that idea that we have this desire to sort of separate ourselves for whatever reason, you know, maybe out of fear, like you were talking about, or a desire for safety, which I guess are intertwined. But that separation 
we're leaving ourselves more and more alone, more and more disconnected, more and more. And, and that being alone leads to loneliness and loneliness needs, leads to despair and that there is a better way, right? If we can get oh, past yeah. that fear. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me give you a chance, Clifton, for any closing remarks you want to make or anything that you want to add. I, I love you, Clifton. I think you were one of the wisest people who's come on my path, and I'm so grateful to have had you in my life. You probably don't even realize the the impact or how many sayings that you've said or pieces of advice that you've just naturally shared that have stuck with me. So I wanted to give you a chance to just close with anything that you want to share that you think would be meaningful for people. I remember being in Chicago probably almost 30 years ago, 35 years ago, maybe. And it was at the book signing uh, in South Chicago, South Side, at a small black bookstore. That night, it was packed out with people. They had either heard of the book or had seen the book or had read the book. Once upon a time when we were colored. And right in the midst of my talk, a lady stood up at the back, waving the book in her hand and talking as loud as her physical microphone would allow her. And she said, I'm here tonight because of this book. This man has written a book. I think she said this man has wrote a book. Has wrote a book that does not cut us up in 50 different pieces. He has left us in community. What a blessing. And she sat down. I <clears throat> never knew that once upon a time when we were colored would find his way to Harlem, I mean to Holland, and from Holland to Puerto, to uh, Costa Rica, Puerto de Limon, where I gave a lecture in the hall that Marcus Garvey had built. But I talked about mm -hmm. community. I talked about relationships. I talked about caring for each other in ways that we may have forgotten how to do. It's not enough to walk on the sidewalk, but what it is is to walk the walk along the sidewalk with others, being excited by our shared humanity, building a place to watch it grow and become in the places where we work, live and play and worship. Community matters. Community matters. <clears throat> That's powerful. Thanks, Clinton. I appreciate it, man. If you'd like to join us for more discussions, with us and other listeners, we can be found on most social media platforms, including a listener-run Facebook group called the Silver Linings Fireside Chat. For deeper conversations with our guests and live conversations with other listeners, you can also join us at our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash the Silver Linings Handbook. This is Jason Blair, and this is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast. We'll see you all again next week.